0: In my own personal history, there was a time when I knew nothing about the Diablo video game. And what a pleasant time it was. Racing games, platforming games, computer role-playing games, and even full-motion video games like Sewer Shark or the unjustly maligned for no better than it was Night Trap were more than enough to entertain me. But then I was introduced, I have to say unwillingly, to Diablo, or possibly Diablo 2. It's hard to remember now. Anyway, the people doing the introducing were ostensibly friends, and they just wanted me to try out this little game they were all playing together. So, after some cajoling on their part, I sat down to play the game and came away with two distinct impressions. The first impression was that it wasn't much of a gaming experience, really. There seemed to be a whole lot of clicking to no real purpose. Click on the ground to move, click on the bad guys to attack them, click this button to heal, click that button to replenish magic, click some stuff on the ground to pick it up, click a door to open it, click stairs to change floors, click, 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 clickety click. Over and over and over again. It was so much clicking, and all happening so rapidly that my clicking finger was wearing out after the third day of it, and after another few days I gave it all up. The second impression I'll come to in a minute, but first let me explain that I did eventually get into Diablo 3, and by and large enjoyed it. It was just as clicky as ever, but by the time I started playing it, that was more welcome than before. You didn't have to think as much about gameplay and puzzle solving, and so the brain was free to wander to other topics like how to put together a script for a podcast. That sort of thing. In fact, I enjoyed Diablo 3 enough that, after having played through it 15 or 16 times, I started looking around for other games in a similar style. And there were lots of them, to be sure. Never let it be said that the video gaming industry cannot spot a trend. Unfortunately, most of them were almost, but not quite, as good as their inspiration. They all seemed to miss something important, something that distinguished the Diablo series from the rest of the pack. But I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time. Until very recently. Until a game called Undecember was released on Steam. It looked pretty good and had an interesting skill system, so I resolved to try it out and see how it measured up not that it is going to matter in the long run, and this certainly isn't a recommendation of any sort, but Undecember doesn't really have a class system. You're free to assemble your play style and abilities as you see fit, which you will do by picking up the various bits of debris dropped by your opponents after you defeat them. You can then mix and match what you collect to essentially design your special abilities and how they work, weapon effects, and various other elements of your play experience, largely independent of any particular class structure, such as you might have in Dungeons & Dragons. That and some crafting, and you could possibly have a useful few days of tinkering before you really committed to any one thing. It was interesting enough on the face of it to get me playing. But almost immediately something seemed off. I wasn't 15 minutes into the game before a little message indicator began to flash on and off on the user interface. I clicked it and discovered I'd been given a reward chest of some description that contained some items I would need to improve my weapons of choice. Fair enough. Thanks, game. And then 15 minutes later, the indicator flashed again, and another little reward was presented to me. And 15 minutes later, another one. And then I started paying more attention to what was going on. See, for the first hour of play, every time you play, you get a reward every 15 minutes. Not just the first time you play, mind you, but every time you play. And you also get rewarded for various achievements, of which there are many. Not all of which require much effort to get. Also, you get a little reward for exploring a given section of the map. And another reward for doing some crafting. And more rewards for talking to people, completing missions, listening to game lore, stepping foot in a new map, eating a healing item, finding a weapon, being introduced to someone who would give you a mission, and then another reward just for showing up at the mission location. Rewards were coming in so fast that you could barely close the UI before another reward showed up and you'd have to open it again to collect the reward. So many rewards were coming in so often that I stopped looking at them, let alone collecting them, as I tried to actually have the adventure I was being rewarded for. It was all too much. Too gameplay disrupting and felt way, way too desperate. Desperate for me to keep playing. So I stopped. Which brings me to my second impression of the Diablo series. The thing Undecember got wrong, or most wrong, was the thing Diablo had got right. You see, Diablo had a finely tuned Skinner box. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. The very first thing to know about a Skinner Box is that its inventor, B.F. Skinner, didn't want you to call it a Skinner Box. No, instead, he preferred the term Lever Box because it was, in fact, a box with levers and not a box with Skinners. Most often, though, it is referred to in the field of psychology as an Operant Conditioning Box. But let's back up a few steps before we really dig into what a Skinner Box is all about and how it relates to the games we play today. B.F. Skinner, or since Skinner really wanted things to have their proper names, Burris Frederick Skinner was born in Pennsylvania in 1904. He attended, after growing up somewhat, Hamilton College in New York, where he failed to become a writer of note, and in 1926 attended Harvard University, where, as an undergraduate, he took up an interest in behaviorism at the behest of one of his friends. And if your first question upon hearing that is, what is behaviorism and why should I care? Welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy your first time here. See, psychology in the 1920s sort of had a couple of little problems. First, it was hard to get anyone to take you seriously if you showed up at a party and said you were a psychologist. Not that people didn't think psychologists were real, it was just that telling people you were a psychologist had about the same weight back then as saying you're a cryptozoologist does today. The field of psychology was very fringy at the time, and very few people took anything you had to say seriously. Sure, they'd politely invite you to dinner and cocktails, but it was mostly because TV wasn't very much of a thing at the time, and some sort of entertainment was needed. What better than to listen to a psychologist explain why you didn't get along with your father because you were secretly in love with your mother? You'd have to be a nutcase to believe all that. And the reason psychology had that first problem was because of psychology's second problem which was that a lot of the things psychologists said were true were more or less completely untestable by anyone who wasn't already prepared to buy into the whole psychology rigmarole. It would be like saying, I know Bigfoot exists because I've heard the noises and smelled the smells, and then all your soon-to-be former friends turn to you and say, Oh yeah? Bring us the body. Which, of course, you couldn't do. By the way, have you heard our episode on Sasquatch? It's really quite interesting. Anyway, what psychology needed was some hard evidence to go along with all this speculation and theory, and up until the 1900s, there hadn't been a lot of it to back things up with. The best evidence that your science is real science, aside from hard evidence like Bigfoot bodies, is, of course, the ability to predict future events based on current theories. Halley's Comet, for instance, got called Halley's Comet not because Edmund Halley discovered it, but because he was able to predict its eventual return accurately enough, thanks to looking through the historical records of previous sightings, to know when it would be seen again. See our Hollow Earth episode for more on Halley and his comet, and one of his crazier theories that turned out to be really, really wrong. The point is, every good theory needs to be able to say what will happen in the future and be correct, which up to the 1900s, psychology hadn't really been able to do. The old psychology, which is referred to as depth psychology, was all about the murky subconscious and its unseen influence on the conscious mind. Basically, and this is a really simplified version of things, you as a human being did things not because of any obvious reasons, but because your subconscious mind exerted control over your conscious mind and made you do things for reasons you rarely understood, or could even hope to understand, or were even aware of. Well, certainly not without deep psychoanalysis. And now you can see the couch and the cigar for what they really are. This was the theory of psychology most often associated with Freud and Carl Jung, And where it all fell apart was in predicting what the next human in line would do given a particular set of circumstances. It just wasn't up to the task. There was no way to say what would happen because even understanding why it happened in the first place was sketchy at best. But then along came behaviorism. Behaviorism began from a different point of view from depth psychology. What if, behaviorists asked, instead of trying to guess what the reasoning behind behaviors was, we instead observed what the actual behavior and its consequences are, and write those down instead. Then we could work out what it was about a given situation that motivated those behaviors and consequences so that the next time a similar situation came up, we could make a much better prediction about what the majority of individuals would do in that situation. We don't have to know if you secretly love Bigfoot's mother in order to accurately say that when Bigfoot slams the front door of his house open, you're going to go right out the window. This was what behaviorist John B. Watson proposed in 1924. Stop mucking about in the subconscious and observe what actually happens. Measure the behaviors and events you can observe and work from there. And he was right. Suddenly, psychology was able to predict what would happen next in a consistent, provable manner. Well, not suddenly, as such. It still took a number of years for people to stop laughing up their sleeves, and it definitely needed some refining in order to work properly. But that's where B.F. Skinner comes back into the story. But not before we discuss a bit about Pavlov and why he was no friend to dogs. See, Ivan Pavlov... Well, Pavlov was playing around in a slightly different playground. Pavlov was studying animal digestion and noticed one day that when dogs were offered a bit of food, they'd begin salivating and drooling. This suggested to him a fun experiment to see if the dogs could be made to salivate even when no food was present. In effect, making the dogs think they were about to be fed delicious meat even when no meat was there. After spending some time ringing a bell and presenting food to dogs, he eventually reached a point where the bell ringing was enough to make the dogs drool all over the place. In effect, the dogs had learned to associate the sound of the bell with the presence of delicious food, and the drool response became automatic whenever they heard the bell. This became known as classical conditioning. Pairing a biologically potent stimulus, food, with an otherwise neutral stimulus, the bell. And it is pretty much how you train your dog in the basic commands to this day. In fact, one of the points of classical conditioning is that it can be used to teach new behaviors via this pairing method. It is important to note that while this is a very simple procedure, you ring a bell or in Pavlov's actual case study set a metronome running, you get a dueling dog, The actual psychological processes going on underneath are very complex and can be influenced by any number of factors both understood and not understood, even today. A lot of classical conditioning relies on the food or unconditioned stimulus being presented in very close association with the bell or conditioned stimulus so that the two are inextricably linked together in the subject's mind. Only then do you get the saliva... Or conditioned response. And playing with the timing and when which stimulus is presented in relation to which response can yield other related effects. Heck, it's even possible to turn off unwanted responses in classical conditioning via extinction, in which a previously conditioned stimulus, the bell in our example, is presented without the presence of the unconditioned stimulus, the food. Done enough times and thoroughly enough, the subject will unlearn the conditioned response. Ring the bell, don't give the food, and the dog soon learns that there's no point in drooling if no one is going to feed it. At that point, the behavior is extinguished, which is all well and good if what you want to study is inbuilt involuntary behaviors. In other words, those behaviors a subject naturally has by virtue of being an alive member of whatever sort of creature it is. An outside stimulus can have an effect on involuntary behaviors and responses. The bell can reinforce and redirect a dog's natural inclination to slobber over food, but it cannot, for example, cause the dog to go to the store, buy its own food, and serve it to itself each evening. And the first of you to jump up and say, but I know of a dog that can, will be excused from the rest of this episode for not knowing the difference between classical and operant conditioning. Go on, run along. Operant conditioning, and I promise we're zeroing back in on Skinner soon. Operant conditioning works the other way around from classical conditioning. The more clever sort of dogs, the sorts that do go to stores and buy things have been taught those kinds of behaviors by having a little reward each time they get a key piece of the more complex behavior right until they've learned to string an entire complex series of behaviors together so that they not only go to the store and buy their own dinners but also remember to put it in the fridge when they're done and hey why not bring me a beer while you're at it who's a good boy you are yes you are The big difference between operant and classical conditioning, though, is that the subject always has a choice in operant conditioning. The dog can choose to either go to the store or not. Maybe it wants to lay in the sunshine instead or chase a ball. Only when the desired choice is made does it get a reward, which then reinforces the behavior chosen. So every time the dog chooses to go to the store instead of chasing the ball or laying in the sun you give it a bit of a treat until pretty soon the dog wants to go to the store even when you don't necessarily want it to because it has learned that a reward soon follows. My very own number one dog knows how to shake hands. Sometimes in the evening when she is feeling like a snack might be a really good idea, she will sidle up to us and offer to shake hands just to see if any treats might be forthcoming. The other half of operant conditioning, or at least the other half of behavioral modification through operant conditioning, is that some behaviors are undesirable, and so are punished. If a behavior occurs which is not wanted, a punishment, or negative reinforcement if the word punishment bothers you, is applied. This does not have to be anything physical or verbal. It could be something as simple as the withdrawal of attention. If you go around begging for food, sorry, if your dog goes around begging for food on a regular basis and instead of rewarding it, you stop paying attention to it, this sends the message that this behavior is unwanted. With enough repetition of this non-response, the dog will soon learn that begging gets negatively reinforced, which it does not like, so it learns not to perform that behavior. Under operant conditioning, desirable behaviors are rewarded, undesirable behaviors are punished, and the behaviors being rewarded or punished are voluntary. There is always a choice. But what if you want more than one dog to engage in the same sorts of behaviors? Are you going to have to teach each new dog that comes along how to perform the behaviors you want, or is there another way to do it? This was the fundamental question proposed by psychologist Edward Thorndike. Thorndike wanted to know whether animals were capable of learning by imitation and observation. In other words, if that dog knows how to shake hands, can this new dog we've never seen before learn to do the same trick simply by observing the first dog and imitating what it does? Except Thorndike ran his experiments on cats. Perhaps he liked the challenge of teaching cats to do anything at all. The cats were placed in puzzle boxes. No, there is no number one cat. The cats were placed in puzzle boxes designed by Thorndike. Each box had a series of pulleys and levers connected by strings to the door of the box. By manipulating a lever or button, the cat could let itself out of the box. All it had to do was learn how. By measuring the time it took each cat to get itself out of the box, Thorndike could establish a baseline for success, and then, by letting the next cat in line watch the previous cat, and measuring how long it took the new cat to get out, he could show whether the new cat had learned from the previous one. And the answer turned out to be that cats didn't learn anything from each other at all. Not one cat posted a better escape time because it watched the previous cat get out. Uninitiated cats were very bad at getting out of his puzzle boxes. They would attempt many things which did not lead to their release until eventually they stumbled upon the right lever more or less by accident. But over time... The cats learned to escape his puzzle boxes more quickly on each subsequent attempt, and did fewer and fewer things that did not lead to their release. This continued until they hit a plateau, after which no amount of continued attempts produced quicker results. Thorndike showed that cats, and many other animals besides, learned by a process of trial and error, and he was able to graph the results and show what we've come to call today a learning curve a graph of how quickly an animal learned. Thorndike applied all this testing and graphing and came up with a thing he really developed, his law of effect, which says that responses that produce a satisfying effect in a particular situation become more likely to occur again in that situation, and responses that produce a discomforting effect become less likely to occur in that situation. If stepping on this button opened the door, I'm going to step on it again sooner the next time I'm stuck in the box. And if it didn't, I won't. But B.F. Skinner, hello again, had some objections to Thorndike's Law of Effect. For one thing, what exactly did Thorndike mean by satisfaction, and how could you measure it? Well, you couldn't, because satisfaction was a mental state, and Skinner was very much in the behaviorism camp, as explained earlier. Behaviorism demanded that results be measurable and repeatable. That was just good science. So satisfaction wasn't an adequate way to determine results. What you needed was empirical evidence, something you could measure. You needed to pay attention to the causes and effects of intentional behavior. So B.F. Skinner built a more complex puzzle box. The one that is technically called an Operant Conditioning box, but that the general public likes to wittily refer to as a Skinner box. However, now you have some idea of what the technical name might mean and why the term Skinner box might not apply to your favorite video games. And why Operant Conditioning was really the way to go. The operant conditioning box was a way for Skinner to test the ability of animals to learn under a variety of conditions and with a variety of stimuli. Something would happen, or in many cases fail to happen, and the occupant of the box, usually a rat or pigeon, would have to work out what to do to make the thing stop happening, or indeed to happen at all. Alarms would go off and the rat would have to find the lever that dispensed a reward to make it stop. A colored light would flash and a pigeon would need to hit the right button to get the correct reward for that light. And even more importantly, sometimes the wrong button would be pushed and a bad thing would happen. And so the rat, or indeed the pigeon, would gradually learn not to do the wrong thing again. By measuring the rate of the various responses, both good and bad, Skinner could build up his empirical data set and not only say what had happened in response to various stimuli, but what was most likely to happen again in the future in the same circumstances. And then, in turn, the data allowed Skinner to come up with a reinforcement schedule. What is a reinforcement schedule, you may well ask? A reinforcement schedule is any procedure that delivers reinforcement to an organism according to some well-defined rule. And it is this reinforcement schedule that gets video games, such as Diablo or Undecember, labeled as Skinner boxes of one sort or another. It's the wrong name for it, of course, because that's how the internet works. But the reinforcement schedule of your favorite video game feeds into something called the Compulsion Loop, which is the right name for what's going on. See, Skinner's reinforcement schedule ideas basically said that depending on the rate of reward or punishment, you could teach an animal fairly quickly what the right thing to do was. And you could do that not because there was an extrinsic reward, say a piece of food or a pat on the head, but because of the thing the extrinsic reward triggered, which was a hit of dopamine in the animal's brain that told it the thing it just did was good, because a good thing happened. Brains love dopamine. Even people's brains. And so, the compulsion loop, which all video games use to keep you playing to one degree or another, is a three-part cycle, which means it happens over and over again. Part one is the anticipation. You anticipate receiving some sort of reward, say, better gear or a new level or a special currency. Part two of the loop is the challenge. Do the thing that gets you the reward. Slay the dragon, explore the map, or even just hang out online for an hour or two. Part three is, of course, receiving the reward. You get the plus one toothpick of eye gouging, or 200 bonus coins of exploration, or even the box of shiny things, because you were still in the game 15 minutes after the last time you got the box of shiny things. And then the loop starts again as you anticipate the next reward. Because each time you hit, consciously or subconsciously, the anticipation portion of the compulsion loop, your brain gets a little hit of dopamine to tell you you're doing the right thing, over and over again. And human brains really love dopamine. Games with well-tuned compulsion loops use a reinforcement schedule designed to push a bit more dopamine just as your brain is coming off the first hit. Diablo, say. But poorly designed compulsion loops use a reinforcement schedule that keeps hitting the dopamine button so frequently that your brain never gets a chance to recover. And so subsequent hits do less and less for it. Until, eventually... More dopamine does nothing at all, and you walk away from the game feeling annoyed and unsatisfied, as if too much is going on to even bother with anymore. Like on December. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. The release schedule has been a bit weird, but the final part of this series is coming, and then we'll head into the new year, at which point things will hopefully have straightened out and we can get on with something a little more regular. So thanks for sticking it out with us. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm glad you joined us. You can help support the show if you are so inclined by heading over to buymeacoffee.com fiddleback and either making a one-time donation or signing up for a monthly membership. You'll be joining dozens of other listeners who've stepped up to the plate to help out and keep the show up and running, even as we've limped through 2022. It truly is a case of every little bit helps, and we are always extremely grateful to those who answer the call. You are all very much appreciated. GM Word of the Week is a Fiddleback production and is researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. A box without hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hid.